Welcome to the Locker Room Podcast. So excited to be with you, Tim, and you, Rod, today to discuss Genesis Chapter 2. If you have your Spotify or podcast app, click follow uh, and hit that notification bell. And that way, um, those podcasts, right, they'll come in right, right to their notification center when they come up. So that'll just help you stay up to date and hopefully help serve you in the future so you don't have to go searching for our stuff. Uh, and we're just so grateful that uh, you guys have given us so much feedback about um, just what we're doing so far. So Tim Bassett is with us this morning alongside Rod and just so excited to have you here. And as we ask everybody, who are you and what are you doing here? Yeah, wow. It's great to be here this morning. Before I get started, I actually brought a gift for the locker room because I'm a little disappointed. The The setting isn't, the, the locker room vibe oh, no. needs a scent. Sparty. Every locker room oh, needs a good. scent, all right? <laughs> no Sparty gear, but a little deodorant you stick little for the, spice. the crew. Sport, baby. Classic. You first, uh, Trey. <laughs> let me get a whiff. <laughs> just, just breathe that sweet smell yeah. in. I was thinking about bringing in my son's wet uh, football cleats from last night's <laughs> practice, but... Hey, Crossroads, let's help the locker room out a bit here. We need about 60 pair of wet, old, nasty uh, <laughs> cleats, pairs of cleats. Please just drop them off in Trigg's office. That would be great uh, so we can get the vibe right here. But Tim, since we're on that, <laughs> played a lot of sports. What was one of your favorite locker room experiences, memories, or maybe wow. what the locker room meant to you? Yeah, wow. So I think you remember uh, – the big losses, like the team, the stuff that meant the most to the team. Uh, so the big losses and the big wins. I mean, I had the chance to play in college and had some good personal games, but I think the locker room really comes alive when the team had success uh, or when the team, you know, we thought we were going to get the win and uh, we, we laid an egg. So, yeah, I can remember, uh, I, I would say my senior year when I, I went to Gladstone uh, High School in the Upper Peninsula and all these downstate teams talking trash on M Live, if y'all remember that. All us you trolls. Know, yeah, all these trolls <laughs> below the bridge talking trash about the UP team, saying that we were going to come down with our pitchforks. Uh, and we showed up and just lit up the first three teams in playoffs and uh, had all the comments from M Live, like in the locker room. You know what I mean? Posted on yeah. the wall. We brought them on the bus. We were like, let's show them. And uh, yeah, we had some big wins, and then we ended up losing uh, kind of a shocking loss to. I think it was Midland Bullet Creek, and they were like, they were so small compared yeah. to us, but we were devastated. Yeah. We made it that far. Oh, it hurts. Yeah, we had eight eight players on my team that went to play in college, and we were a good team. But uh, that ride was a ton of fun, and that loss, you know, you come yeah. together, and it's all just experience you get as a team, right? Blood, so, sweat, tears there in the locker room sitting there, yeah. you know. Not really saying much either, right? But just the presence of your teammates, everybody's exactly. just there together. Dealing with the the blow, the devastation. Yeah, yeah. There's always a hug or two, you mm -hmm. know. Um, well, and that's the thing we talk about, like this locker room mentality at Crossroads. We talk about the whiteboard, we talk about the game plan, we talk about marching orders for the week. But I think something that we we can spend even more time talking about is just what we have here as a community. Yeah. We have each other's back. We can mourn together. We can celebrate together, and we shouldn't overlook that. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. also a benefit of the locker room. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, I was I was even proud of my my dad this week. Uh, he just takes his place in the locker room every Sunday, and he's struck up a real friendship with a man named Dennis. And 
Mm-hmm. Dennis this week lost his wife, Nancy, to a heart attack. Uh, and Dennis was the first guy that my dad saw on Sunday. And he was just telling me about this this week. Just, um, yeah, to be two teammate, teammates, you know, one devastated by the loss of his wife mm-hmm. and just being able to be together, find strength from each other. So Yeah, we don't have to carry that stuff alone. No. You come to the locker room to... Uh, you come to the locker room to to carry each other's burdens. Amen. Paul talks a lot about that. So yeah. Oh, I went up to Dennis and I just said thank you for your testimony, and he said I wouldn't want to be any other place, and Nancy wouldn't want me to be any other place, and I think that just speaks volume. So yeah, you know, there's there is this ecclesiology out there, and that's a fancy word for for church and how we're supposed to do church and. I think this is especially coming from a younger generation, but it's not limited to that. They, there's this idea that the, the big gathering's broken and it's something we need to graduate from and move on. Um, I just want to say, not at Crossroads. Yeah. Like we value the small, we value our house churches. We want everyone to find a place and in, in, in a place where they're known, uh, knowing others, but the gathering is also very, very important to us. Incredible. It is the locker room yeah. where we, we can come together. I need it for my soul. It resuscitates me on weeks where I am <laughs> taking L's in my life, right? And then it's also a place that is refreshing when I've been taking, not the L's, but, you know, taking victories and, and making ground in my life. And I know that to be true for my wife as well. Speaking of wins, you know, we're so quick to be tempted to jump into Genesis chapter 3, right? talk about the big drama of the the loss that humanity takes the loss of the garden and i think that as a result of that we don't always sit in the beauty of the win before the loss eden yeah. and tim you well first of all just to give people context <laughs> yeah. yeah why are you here this morning and <laughs> what did you do this week that that makes it relevant yeah, I'm glad to be here this morning. I had the chance to uh, fill in, do some pulpit fill at a church that's a you know a friend of ours. Their pastor was in the the hospital, and uh, so they invited me in to share. And I thought, what better thing to share than what my family back here at Crossroads was studying? So we did. I preached on Genesis two four through fourteen last Sunday uh, there. So I love it. So let's talk about Genesis chapter two. Is this uh, another creation account or? Are there two separate creation accounts? What's going on here going from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2? You did a really good job of kind of elaborating on that, Tim. You want to give it a shot? Yeah, I think I think we've talked about it as a, as a teaching team, and, and you touched on it as well, Trig. It's just you see this cosmic God, creator of the universe, uh, moving things at his word in chapter 1. And I love the quote you used. I forget who gave you that quote. It was... Um, uh, Bartlett, Jamie, Jamie gave a, gave a summary of the, the difference between chapter one and chapter two. I just thought that was so well said, but the cosmic God of chapter one is also the personal, uh, involved God of chapter two. And he's about to highlight something very significant, right? So we can talk about the author. We can talk about the audience. We should probably go there, but just the text by itself, I was struck by the setting as you move into chapter two, at the right page break, something's, everything's almost at a standstill. 
So you have the reins being held back for some reason. And we find out that they're being held back because there's no one to abode, no one to work, cultivate, till the ground. This is a serious deal to the, to the author, uh, to God through Moses, so much so that he makes us sit in that awkward space. And again, you, like you, you presented as you open us up, we could move to the drama of Genesis and rush to it. And as modern readers, that's where we think the good stuff is. Get me to the tree, the snake, the fall. But if we look at just the literary, like the, the literary context, what's happening in the storyline, this is significant. This is as important to the author as what's to come. Something needs to happen in creation and it's going to speak to God's purpose for writing his creation account the way that he does. So we can dive into that. But I would love to just stay on that because you made the same point on Sunday and I had not really seen what both of you have brought to the table in that text before is that God created the need for work or highlights the vacuum uh, of work That's before he creates the worker, the human. Mm-hmm. And he creates, he creates the work, the need for work before he creates the human who's going to do the work, which speaks to the fact that God is already creating space for someone to fill that vacuum who will be a partner with him. Yeah, and I I would argue too that, so this text says, nothing had sprung up from the ground yet because God had not brought the rain. So technically God hasn't created the work yet. He's he's not letting the work, like the space that needs cultivating, that needs work to to flourish until his, his worker, his order bringer is in place. Again, just another theme throughout the whole, the whole creation narrative, God has now purposed the chaotic waters to benefit and bless the land, but he's holding it back. He's in complete control mm. of this chaos and he's given it a good purpose, but because we all agree we need rain. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. I mean, you look at all the rain we're getting this week, I, working for a landscape company, everything's growing like crazy. It's beautiful. Rain, we need the rain, but God's holding it back for a very specific reason. Because he knows when that water hits the ground, things are going to flourish and they're going to need cultivating. They're going to need man. A gardener. Um, a gardener. It's yeah. going to need it. So he's holding up his mighty right hand and saying, you can't come yet. And that's, that's a big moment. For all you young men out there, God creates a job before he creates your spouse. So let's get to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> I can say again to that. I mean, work is... There's great joy in it. Yeah, joy, there's meaning. Um, It's not a curse, you know? I think that whole phrase, you know, do we work to live or live to work? You know, and and generations have lived into that differently. Mm -hmm. Some generations live to work and other generations work to live. But but work is, is, is a good thing. Yeah, I was even just thinking about it this week. A lot of you are probably really familiar uh, with a guy by the name of Jordan Peterson, but he's a clinical psychologist out of Canada, and I know so many young men have just attached to his voice, and I think he has a lot of really helpful things to say. But I was wondering why so many young men have attached to kind of the things that Jordan Peterson has been expressing, and one of the things is this value of work that we're actually created to work and 
I don't know if he uses that language specifically, but he talks about our dignity and identity um, oftentimes being shattered because we don't have purpose. And um, <laughs> he, uh, he actually has a chapter in one of his most famous works that's called uh, Make Your Bed Before You Go Out and Criticize the World. And we are in a culture that is so quick to go out and criticize the world and we haven't made our bed at home, right? And I don't know, just an interesting thought. And I thought, well, we should be speaking to this more as the church because we actually have a biblical basis for speaking of work as a good thing that in and of itself was created for not just the cultivation of the world, but for our pleasure. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love that God creates the work and then invites us into that work. And you had a great analogy this week with your dad. And when he was doing those jobs around the house, how he invited you when you were still young, what, five, six, seven, eight years old, into the work that he was doing, uh, which in a sense was probably incredibly honoring. You probably felt really important that you're helping dad. And that's just a great way in which parents can teach their kids what work is, that that work can be a joy. Totally. And you oftentimes say this, Rod, but we can't reduce this word work down to just being a job. So how might work in the biblical sense be more than just a job? Because the way we look at work, culturally speaking, is our jobs. And then usually there's a full stop there. Yeah, I mean, the word. Let's look at the the word in Hebrew. It's a bod, right? And uh, there's a lot of, it's a dynamic word. There's a lot of different ways that it's it's used throughout scripture. Uh, the the most root that I've noticed, and Rod, you can speak into this, is uh, to cultivate, to till up. Uh, but you also see it uh, as serve. Throughout Exodus, it's most commonly translated, serve the Lord, abad the Lord. Uh, but in all cases, I've noticed that, and, and I think Deuteronomy or Exodus 8.1 is a really good example, it's translated worship, yeah. to worship the Lord. So you've got serve, worship, cultivate, till up, work. Uh, it's a dynamic word. But I think at the root is that element of doing something for God. There's worship and service involved in this, this abad. Uh, and I'm really stuck, at least in the context of this chapter two, the context informing the translation of cultivate or to till up. But maybe before we get there, like, what do you see in that, that word and uh, the worship element? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you just said is, unbelievably fascinating. It's a game changer if we understand that work and worship are the same thing. Because that means what I do on Monday is as important as Sunday. If it's worship. Amen. Whatever I do. Um, if I'm in this space or that space, uh, that all of life is to be worship, you know? And, and that I think attaches a lot of meaning to work. If we can start to understand our work as our most important worship or form of worship. Yeah. Cause there's a way to a bot, uh, in Exodus, there's all these warnings. I think it's Exodus 28. Uh, I was reading last week. There's all these warnings with come that come with a botting another God serving, worshiping, working for another God. So I think like the application piece uh, that's just been sticking with me is 
not what I do, but why I do what I do. When I show up to work, am I abiding for God or am I abiding for a name for myself yeah. or for the love of money? What idolatries involved in my heart actively moving me out into the places I go? Because I don't know if I think it's A.W. Tozer says something along the lines of like in the parade of the ages, like people confuse motion with progress. Like we can be as busy as we want. But if we're not doing our work for the right person, for the right reasons, it's all in vain. It's toil. Yes. It's slavery. Yeah, it's slavery. Right? And I was thinking of Babel, because we're that's 10 chapters in, and you have this story of people building a tower, working to make a name for themselves. I mean, our whole world, world is Babel right now. That's what work is. I work to make a name for myself. Um, but then if you look at the context in which this text is written to the people it's written. Think about what work was to them, you know? And now they're not working to make a name for themselves. They're as slaves, they've been enslaved to make a name for Pharaoh. And God comes in, swoops in, and says to Pharaoh, you're gonna let my people go so they can go into the desert and, and abide, worship me. And so he's going to take them out of slavery where they work for Pharaoh to make his name great. God's going to take them to the special place, the desert, where they're now going to, in essence, work for God and make his name great. And instead of being slaves, they're now going to be sons. And I, I, my mind couldn't help but go there, go back a couple of weeks to talking about our mission, vision, and values when... We talked about the woman with the alabaster jar because that alabaster jar represented her work in a sense. It was the most precious thing that she ever, you know, she would ever own and ever did own. And she cracks it open and she pours it out over Jesus, representative of him being worthy of all of her work, which is so interconnected with her worship. Because what she's doing in that passage is she's worshiping Jesus, but this alabaster jar is representative of her work. So... It just goes to show that in the entire biblical narrative, work and worship are so interlaced with one another that they're almost hard to separate. And, and in the same way that we worship constantly, we're unceasing worshipers, and we will worship something. The question is not what we worship, or, or not if we will worship, but what we worship. In the same way, we're working. Yeah. Even if we think we're not working, we're working for something. I know. And we live in Babel. So the pressure is to work to make a name for ourselves because it's so pronounced in our culture. It's what so many people are doing and how they're living. And yet this right here lives in such contrast to that. Um, it's calling us to something higher and better and more meaningful. Uh, and our jobs are more than jobs, they're vocations. And then when you look that God created each one of us, we're all the same and that we're all made in his image like God, and yet we're all unique and different. And that our vocation is, is probably even tied to that. Um, the uniqueness, the talents that are different, you know, what we bring to the table. And to find that and to live into that for the glory of God. Is there anything else that comes to mind when we're talking about this theology of work? I just think it's worth noting uh, that we see in... Deuteronomy and even Exodus, there's this warning that comes to the people. Again, the context of Genesis 2, God's writing through Moses to a people who are about to enter the promised land. All right. So 
he's preparing their hearts and their minds for what they need to do when they get there. And this, this call is to uh, halak direct, walk in my ways. It's also, it's also to uh, cultivate and work the land and, and, and serve him. But if they don't abide him, he warns them that the fruit of your labor is going to rot in your hands. You're going you're gonna to cultivate, you're going to till, but it's not going to produce any crops. Mm. Uh, and you look back to the garden. Everything's echoing back to Genesis. What is the curse? It's this, this ground's going to work against you now, Adam. It's going to work against you in your abad, in your effort to serve me, in your effort to cultivate. It's going to work against, uh, against you. And so uh, I just think there's plenty of warning in not serving the Lord and abiding him. And there's plenty of blessings that come with following after him. You look at Psalm 1 and, and the list goes on of people who walk in God's ways and who dwell and meditate on his law. They're like a tree planted by, it's garden language. Garden so it's language. beautiful. I love it. So God starts forming the garden. He creates work in the garden. And then, ironically, the order seems so backwards to us, but it speaks to what God's trying to communicate here, then he finally now creates the one to work the garden. And the way that God chooses to describe how he does this is stunning to me, at least it was in studying it this week. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, which is more like this clay substance, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And what was interesting to me, and maybe I'm wrong here, I don't know, but my mind had this picture of, okay, now these uh, waters have have kind of been subdued and there's earth and there's water. And so God kind of take goes to where the earth and the water kind of comes together. And then there's a, this clay substance. And then he starts messing around with this clay substance that comes between the water and the land. And then he picks it up and he starts shaping it like a potter into what he wants it to be. I mean, if that's true, and obviously half of that I know to be true, but the other half is speculation. But either way, God forms the man from this dusty clay substance. What is the significance for us as human beings? We're talking about this text as people that know the English language, but the text was actually written in Hebrew. And I don't know if you guys uncovered this in your study, but this blew me away. The clause, and he formed. There's an anom anomaly there. It's yah, vai, yitzer, okay? Um, Break that down for the non-Hebrew yeah, scholars. It, vai, yitzer means, and he formed. The anomaly is that there are two whys when there should only be one in the word yitzer, okay? What is the Hebrew letter why? You guys know. Yud. You know what it means? Just what I'm showing you right now. Hand. So this anomaly doesn't exist in Genesis 2 verse 19 where it says any form. That's there it's written the right way. It's written with two Y's. Two Y's, Yuds, which means hand in Hebrew. Two hands go into the ground to form the person, the man. I don't know. Like that's how that's how the Hebrew <laughs> scholars see this and that's interpret amazing. it. 
And so what you were saying, you don't even know how much that is even in yeah, the I didn't even know. Itself. I thought I, w- I was making some conjecture, but I just I was piecing all the pictures together, and I'm like, okay, so where is he getting this dust or clay? Okay, it's got to be where the waters and the land are coming together, and then you put that piece in, and it's like, okay, yeah, there's a reason that this language is being used here, and that's amazing because it means that it's it's not accidental that mm-hmm. God's actually doing something intentional, and that if He's forming us, and He doesn't just poof, create us, then all of the intricacies of our physical material being are significant to him. And yeah, I mean, you guys already did this, but you contrasted God, the creator, Genesis 1, where he is just the king of the universe, so transcendent, so above and beyond the actual world that he's creating. He's over it. He's ruling it through the power of of, the, of his spoken word, it comes into being. But now, as you both mentioned, this this God who's way, way out there and so beyond us, so transcendent, now comes close, he draws near, and becomes incredibly personal to the point where you almost can envision uh, in the text his hands literally going into the clay and then his hands forming that clay into a little miniature of himself. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, that... That reality, I think, is distinct in the ancient Near East, right? We've talked about, you guys did a great job in the last episode talking about all the differences in creation narratives, Epic of Gilgamesh and others, and the bloodshed and all the stuff that's involved. But there is a really clear desire I think God has in this creation account. It's, he wants to be known, and he wants to know, he wants his people to know, again, as they enter the promised land, he's, he's re-inviting humanity to walk with him again in a special place. He wants them to know, I want to be known. I'm not some high and mighty mysterious God that you need, that, that you're never going to be see or experience. I'm going to be right here. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about you. Like I'm, I'm in your life. Your life matters to me too. I don't just want you to know, cause you need to know who I am. I want to know you intimately. We talk about Yadar, right? Yep. Like to, to, to know, and this is the, the invitation in his creation narrative. I mean, this is the whole theme. And so you talk about pulling out elements like you, you, you were able to pull out, Trig, uh, just, just as you've been living in the text. If you're living in the context and, and the why behind Genesis and not getting stuck in like, is this a seven-day creation account, literally? Is this old earth, new earth? Like, what's, how, do we, how does sin get passed down from generations? Those are all fine questions and worth digging into. But if you're living in the context of these people and what God's trying to accomplish, you start to see it everywhere. What is God saying about himself? What is God trying to relay to his audience, not just then, but now? What does he want us to know when we read Genesis about him and about how much he cares about us? Yeah, and that's amazing. what we see with and two hands in the dirt. I mean, so it's like God is saying to his people, okay, look, you know, Egypt had thousands of gods. They had a deity for literally everything. And now this God who literally just did this display of, of plagues culminating in him parting the waters and walking them through that parted sea and then destroying the Egyptian army. They're really left like, who is this God? And now all of a sudden they get this text where God's like, this is who I am, okay? And you get this song, 
how it starts in Genesis 1, I created the universe. But then you move to the second creation account. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the God that formed each of you. I made you. I mean, it's like they already know Psalm 139 before they have Psalm 139. I knit you together in your mother's womb with my very hands. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm that God. And I would say this is how everyone comes to faith. <laughs> God introduces himself. We don't go find him. He comes to us and he says, this is who I am. I know for you, Tim, like, I want to make this really practical. Your story inspires me because the language that you've used when you've talked to me about it is God came into my life and he introduced himself. So maybe you could just encourage us with that a little bit. I know it's kind of a, a dovetail, but yeah, the way that you describe that is so beautiful to me. And I'd love for our people to get a little bit, little glimpse into that. Yeah. I, so I always think of my testimony and like when I look back, you get older and you, you're like, man, my testimony is going to take a lot longer to share <laughs> as you get older. Right. You know, like I'm, I'm 36 and you know, there's a lot to the story, but if I just kind of live in, in that season where God really did a, you know, a revealing work in my life early on in my childhood, there's a lot of brokenness in, in my home and in, in my, my town, my neighborhood, uh, my school. And I think I spent a lot of my, if you look at your prayer life, it can say a lot about where you're at with God in any season. I think when I was young, I prayed, uh, for the world around me. That was a big, big part of my life. Like save, you know, help my mom and dad's marriage, save my brother, save my friends. Uh, but there was a moment, uh, a season when I got into middle school, high school, where I wasn't just gripped with like the darkness in the world around me, but God really grabbed hold of my heart and revealed it to me like he does to Israel in the desert. He just show, showed me my heart and how dark. I was living two lives, one foot in the church, one foot out in the world, um, making a ton of mistakes. And God just put my heart on display, put it out on the table, and my whole prayer life changed. Obviously, I still cared about my, my parents' marriage. I cared about my friends who didn't know the Lord. I cared about my brother. Um, but man, my prayers turned into just like, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner, forgive me, uh, even to an unhealthy extent. Like, I think there was a season where I just felt like I, at any moment God was going to give up on me. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Lord, just, just how long does your mercy last? Like just praying through the Psalms, like, mm. is your mercy really new every morning? Cause I really need it. And I think that was a season where things started to shift. Uh, the behaviors didn't change immediately. Um, but God had grabbed a hold of my life and I'd experienced his love and he had made it abundantly clear. I've got this, just this vision in my head that came at such a perfect time in my life in high school, uh, crying in my basement bedroom, Saturday morning, hungover. I had made a bunch of mistakes that Friday night after a football game and feeling like God, God was done with me. And I remember the vision, I'll never forget it, and I share it often, Jesus getting down on his knees. Because I think, again, backing up, prior to that, my vision of God was, yes, he died for me, yes, he loves me, I know all the answers to that, and like, I know the gospel mentally, but how I experienced God was off in the corner of the room with his arms folded when I made mistakes like I had just made. And in that moment, Jesus got down on his hands and knees, put his hands on my face, pinned his forehead to mine and said, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. Try me. 
And it was like a football coach grabbing my helmet and yelling truth into my face. And it's the language of our relationship and God knew it well. And I experienced him and he got down at my level on his knee and, uh, yeah, it changed my life. Again, behaviors needed some time (laughs) to change, but, uh, that Mm. experience of God just solidified. This is who I love. This is who I live for. And this is what God does in Genesis one and Genesis two. I mean, he takes the chaos and he rules it and he subdues it and brings life and order out of it. In fact, this is what I think's going on when it comes to these rivers is Genesis one starts with this chaos, this abyss, the deep, soupy, swampy. And now we have water, but it's rivers. And what's the difference between a river and a swamp? A swamp just consumes. A river has guardrails. It's got banks. But more important than that, a river has a destination. It's actually going somewhere. It's flowing somewhere, and it has a source. And the source of this river that has been ruled and subdued into a river that now is water that brings life into the world, which is what God does of our own lives, right? He takes the chaos and he's like, that's mine. I'm taking it back and I'm, now I'm going to use it for my purposes, right? And now it's got a, it's, now you know where the source of this water is coming from. It's coming from God, the life that's breathing in it, but it's also got a destination. I want that, that water to flow into your life, that living water, and now I want it to flow out of your life. So maybe we could talk about the significance of these rivers because there's a ton of theological geography going on. Um, And thank you for that, Tim. That was such a gift. But while this word is not used in this text, I think that it would be very clear to a Hebrew that these waters are Ma'in Ka'im. Would you agree with that, Rod, or no? Yeah, for sure. What Uh, is Ma'in Ka'im? Ma'in Ka'im is the opposite of the Tehom. The Tehom is the, the watery chaos of Genesis 1, verse 2, that the Spirit hovers over. That's going to, Spirit and God are going to move into that. And Maim Kaim is probably one of the ultimate images, Hebraic images of God. God is Maim Kaim. He's living water. And that's what God does. He turns the Tehom the watery abyss, the watery chaos into Maim Kaim, a river of life. And that's what you have in Genesis 2. You have the tree of life, which also is a powerful symbol of God, his presence, his nearness, his making his home in that space. And then flowing out of that space is this river of life, which is God flowing out into creation because it breaks then into four rivers going to the four corners of the globe. And this is God's original intent when he makes the world is his presence just going from his home, his space where he lives, where he dwells because he's not just a God that wants to be way out there. He wants to be the God that comes to us and takes us by the face, puts puts our face in his hands and says, try me, (laughs) right? And yes, and now he wants that God to flow into all creation. And so, I mean, I could go on and on about Maim Kaim. Um, Yeah, it's the water that comes to us, literally, um, either through the rain or a river or a spring. And in a world, 
an ancient world where water is very precious, where they are living just to get enough water every single day, especially in a dry and weary land like the Middle East where there is no water or very little water. Um, any form of water is, is seen as precious, but Maim Kaim is most precious. And that's why God says, this is who, what I am. I am a spring of Maim Kaim. Yeah, and even in the practical sense in the ancient world, Mayim Kaim is very different than the other form of water that they would have, which is just stale water, the water that they would have to keep in cisterns. Right? Collect. I mean, they're, you're collecting it. It's running through the streets. It's running through the dirt, the mud, the, the animal dung, um, making its way into your cistern. But that water is important because you need that water to survive. Um, that would be the place then that every family would go and, and draw their water from. But then to have this fresh river water um, or water from a spring, I mean, that was just more the water. That was living water. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy if you Google uh, the rivers. There's a lot of scholarly work <laughs> being done on, uh, can we track back these four waters to the headwaters and find Eden today? Two of them you can find on a map. Well, look at that. Trigg's already done the work. So I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, that's why people, I think, get curious because two of them you can find on a map. The other two you can't. So yeah. let's talk about that. Well, it's just interesting to me. It goes back to this thing we're, we're going to say throughout the series, right, is, is going to be like, what does our modern lens make us ask that God's not trying to speak to? Now, does, would God love it if whatever, if we discover beautiful rivers and happen to find them, like, of course, fun, that's great. But that's not the point. The point is this vision you just laid out. Uh, and and he, Adam gets it. Adam's going to see it. And hopefully Israel's going to see it as they enter the promised land. You were made. So the names of the rivers in Hebrew, I don't know. I don't know if these are 100% accurate. We always look at Rod, you know, me and Trig over here, like, are we right? <laughs> no, we're staring am I, at him. Rabbi, am I right? Uh, but I've seen them translated as fruitful, flourishing, uh, rapid, and bursting forth. Those are the names. Are those the names? Yes. This is the vision. Yes. Right? That's what's to break forth from God's home. Yeah. Flourishing. This is the intent for garden, for mankind. Yes. I don't know. You look at the church today. Are we bursting forth? Well, now, okay. Now we're back into... I'm getting too excited. God created work before he created the worker. Mm -hmm. And what is the work? The work is that we would be this river of Maim Kaim um, as we live into God and are connected to God because God's home is Adam and Eve's home too. That garden, they live there together. And, And then the work is, I mean, God is on mission from the very beginning. And the mission is to bring this water to the four corners of the globe. Okay. So let's play that theme out even further, if you want your mind blown, because I did a little bit more study on the rivers as well. And you're talking about how their now job or their work is to bring that to the four corners of the earth, which is why there's four headwaters. But remember, there's one source, which again speaks theologically to, we all have the source, which is Yahweh. And then we take that source and it breaks off and goes to the four corners of the earth. So there's your missional language. 
Okay, but there's four actual names for these rivers. You have the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And what I learned this week is crazy. So Pishon just means gusher. And the text says that it's got gold in it, and then it's got aromatic resin is the how the NIV translates it, but the ESV says bdellium. And this Hebrew word is actually used only one other place in the text. So this is the stuff that's in the river. And the bdellium, the only other place that it's used is to describe the manna that falls from heaven, the food of Eden for the Israelites in the desert. And that's what's in this river. And then there's gold there, and then there's onyx. Yeah, we're still on the Gihon. Yeah, and so there's onyx. Let's see. Is the, where's the onyx? Is the onyx? Yeah, the onyx is still in... No, this is in the Pishon. And onyx, if you were to actually Google a picture of onyx stone, it looks like light breaking into darkness. It's a mm. white and black stone. And it looks like these white, uh, just like lines are bursting into this black stone. It's kind of cool. So I don't know, take it or leave it. That's cool. So then that winds its way through Havilah, which is on its way to Egypt. Um, and that's where God's people obviously end up in Egypt. But then you have the Gihon. And the Gihon is mentioned only one other time in the biblical text. And it's the spring uh, water source of Jerusalem and the temple. Now you guys both walked through that river. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Is that? That's the Hezekiah's Tunnel. Wow. Really? Yes, that's the Gihon. It's the Gihon Spring. Wow. It means gusher. Yeah. So there's your second one right there mm-hmm. from the temple. Okay, and then you've got Tigris and the Euphrates, which are associated with Babylon. And what's significant for that is that when God's people are in Babylon, what does Jeremiah the prophet tell them to do? build houses, plant gardens, like make... Bring shalom to chaos. Yeah. Which is also their call in Egypt. So to go back to your point, like we're... I think sometimes we can get... And you talk about this too. Like why are we so tempted to flee the city? Because the city oftentimes has the chaos. And we feel that like as as Christians, it's like, okay, we got to flee the chaos rather than move into it and bring shalom to it. And here these rivers are associated with places that will be chaotic for God's people. And yet that's representative of them and their call to bring life to it. And of course, this is the call of Abraham and the family of God, right? It's like you are going to be a blessing to all nations. And then wherever the family of Abraham as it grows becomes that blessing, you get these pictures of Eden. And oftentimes those stories happen around wells or water sources. I mean, the, the biblical imagery is amazing here. Yeah, and again, when you put it all together, like God created this universe and then created a partner and essentially said, Adam and Eve, partner with me. Partner with me. Rule, subdue. Here's the keys to my whole universe. Bring my shalom uh, to chaos. Be like me. Reflect me. Bring me to the world. And when that doesn't go well, God doesn't just give up on the universe. He raises up another Adam and Eve, the Israelites, and says, all right, let's do this again. Be my people in my special place, in my garden, where I'm going to live, and now put me on display. Bring my mind, Kaim, to the world. 
yeah, expand the borders of Eden. Every yeah. day we wake up in the morning, crossroads, hear this. Every day you wake up in the morning, whether you love your job or you hate it, whether you find yourself in difficult circumstances or, or the ideal setting, when you wake up in the morning, you're planting gardens. You're expanding the borders of Eden to those conversations at the water cooler at work, to your marriage, to your kids at the dinner table, where you shop, where you spend your free time. These are the spaces where we can plant gardens. We can extend the borders of Eden. But there's a way to go out into the world, right? Mm -hmm. Devoid of the presence of God, toiling under our own power without God's presence. And it leads to exhaustion and bad fruit. As again, as we learn, God warns his people entering the promised land. You can toil, you can abode, mm -hmm. but apart from me, bad fruit. There's a way to go out into the world and again, achieve and be busy, but not do it with the presence of God for the sake of God's name. And so Eden's only Eden because God's there. So the only way we expand the borders is to bring his presence out from that space. And just like the bursting forth rivers, uh, that's our call. Yeah, without God and being connected to God, we are the Tahome. It's the source or the chaos, the watery chaos. Yeah. And I love what John Eldridge says. He has this imagery that we are to be outposts of Eden, these outposts of Eden in our world. And we don't do that individually as much as we do it uh, collectively, you know, as a community, as families, as a tribe. Uh, we are to be a people that are drinking the living water uh, connected to the tree of life, these outposts of Eden and that are bringing Eden to the world. And, and that the river of life splitting into four headwaters is actually a perfect picture for what we want Crossroads to be, which is that we all have one source, but we have many destinations that we're taking that source of life to throughout the week. And this is why I love that you're here, Tim, because I think it's I hope that this doesn't happen, but I would imagine sometimes if it's like, okay, well, Rod and Trig, they, they work at the church. Like it's easy for them to picture the fact that they might be working for or alongside God because, oh, they're doing church work, but you're not directly involved in that every single mm -hmm. day. You're at your landscaping company. Yeah, you're at uh, the hammer. Yeah. You're wearing their shirt proudly today. Yeah. The yeah. Best right back to work after this. Dude, you're a so. gardener. Heck yeah. Well, <laughs> so can you speak to that a little bit? Because sure. like I could say stuff, but I think it'd be far more powerful for you to, as someone that, that is just in the day-to-day -day grind of a job, um, to speak to what it looks like to be that. Yeah. This season at the hammer has been, uh, just incredibly fruitful, uh, for me missionally to, to realize this. I mean, I, my biggest takeaway, I think, from Genesis as we, we've studied it is just this reminder that when I wake up in the morning, it's not about the job description on paper. I need to get that done. Uh, but am I going into those spaces with the presence of God for the sake of expanding the borders of Eden? And one thing we talk about at the Hammer, just as an example, and this comes straight from the top from our ownership is, uh, you know, Wade and Dustin Vuktaveen, they, they ask this question every morning meeting on Wednesday mornings to all staff. It, we say what what's said in the truck matters. Conversations in the truck matter. Uh, and so when, I mean, you look at your life, you spend 70% of your time at work. 
And the guy that's sitting next to you in the truck or in the cubicle across from you is impacting you as much, if not more, than some of your friend groups that you only see on Friday or your house church that you see for two hours on Sunday. Mm. The people you work with, one, it's a mission field, right? It's a space we need to cultivate, uh, that word abad, but it's also a space that can impact us. And so living in that space, if you're not living in that space with knowing who you are and knowing what you're here for, you will get swept and tossed by all the waves of varying opinions and influences that, that are upon you at work. But even more beautiful, if you wake up realizing the purpose that you have, you can enter into that space with intentionality and it's, it matters. It's eternally valuable. Everything we do, everywhere we go, who are we to say that the one person we see in a truck for you know, our 50-hour work week isn't as valuable as the thousands who listen on a Sunday morning, right? We need to enter those spaces and understand that our call is to cultivate, expand the, the borders of Eden, and God's given that work to us. And if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it because no one else is in that space. That's so good. So that's meant, that's meant a lot. And that's why we exist, Trig. Our job at this church is to raise up our people to be outposts of Eden, are living their lives on mission through their vocation bringing maim kaim to their world yeah and to do that you got to be filled up and you got to know the source and so i would argue that the person that fulfills every single ounce of the motifs being set up here not i would argue i know this to be true (laughs) is the person of jesus john's gospel obviously is littered with this type of language, obviously in John seven, Jesus gets up on the last day of the festival and says, what I'm living water. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but he's crucified, not just on a cross, but what is the language that the Bible often uses for that cross? A tree Mm -hmm. cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. So now this whole thing gets flipped upside down because God enters our world, right? Here's the cosmic becoming personal again, in the face of Jesus. And he climbs up a tree that is both the tree of death and the tree of life. And he's crucified on Golgotha, which is kind of like a mountain. And so is Eden. And then when he's pierced on his side, what flows out? Not just blood. Water. But water. John, And that's in John's gospel only. John. So John's very. Wants us to see that. John must that. have loved the book of Genesis because mm-hmm. even the beginning of the book of John, I mean, just so you know, when we're preaching through Genesis, it is, it is so hard not to go to John's gospel every single week. But John must have loved the book of Genesis. Every time I, now that I've been in both, I'm like, gosh, this guy must have lived in it. Yeah, And he's I not did. doing something that's, by the way, this is all true of Jesus. It's not like he's putting these monikers on him but i just it's fascinating to me yeah john also wrote revelation right uh, i was just gonna go there <laughs> Revelation and he's, he's, he's using these same themes i mean revelation 7 verse 17 i don't know the text right now can you get it for us Trey? revelation what Seven seventeen. you already said i know this because my for the lamb Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You know you. No, yeah, yeah. So Revelation seven seventeen for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and they shall lead them 
Oh, and he shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. I think that's the that's where the KJV. whole story is going. Yeah, is that Jesus who came to this world to say, "I am my Kaim, living water," and is living water. It's all going to move to a spot where that living water is going to go to the four corners of the earth, and all creation is going to be drenched in it. And it's going to be restored. Um, the world's going to be restored to Eden, which is why in Revelation twenty one twenty two, uh, the, the way it's described by John, uh, you're going to have the river of life that's just flowing right through the New Jerusalem. Again, that river of life is more than a river, but it's God. And he's going to live there on Main Street. And then what's so interesting on both sides of that river is the tree of life. And... Again, there's something in the language that we don't see in the Greek, which is what our New Testament, that's the original language of our New Testament. They have two words for tree. The main word for tree is dendron. So every time you see tree in the New Testament, if Zacchaeus goes up, uh, up the tree, it's the word dendron. There's only one spot in the New Testament where the second word for tree is used, which is zulon. And the interesting thing about this other word for zulon, when the Greek, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, stay with me on this, I know it's complicated, but the only place where tree, every time tree, of, it's dendron, 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 every time tree is used, except for one spot in the Old Testament. It's the text you just, cursed is the one who hangs on a zulon. So zulon is tree, but it's also wood. So you come to our New Testament, the only time tree is used, not dendron, but zulon as wood, is the tree of life in Revelation. That's on the side. And so the tree of life is the cross. And that tree is going to provide healing for the nations. It's unbelievable. It's just... I remember you teaching on that at Bridge Street uh, years ago and sharing that and just blew my mind. God, you can't make this stuff up. You can't. <laughs> so when I said on Sunday that it, I felt, and maybe this was the wrong language to use on a Sunday morning, but when I said that I really feel like it's criminal, the types of things that we have to fly over for this thing to even come close to 40 minutes, it's because of this stuff right here. And this is why Genesis matters, right? Because you talked about it week one. Like we have to know the beginning of the story to understand the whole story. And the beginning of the story couldn't be written by all of the AI robots in the world right now. Chat GPT. You can't create this. You cannot create this through artificial intelligence. You need the intelligence of the universe, the Lagos. Well, and I'm wondering here too, if we can, there's to your point, Trig, and Rod, you go first here, but to your point, there's, there's more. How much time do we have? <laughs> no, Can know. we nerd out? I've got one one more piece on that, Revelation yeah. 7 and 21, but you go first. You. So it says he fed them. What else does Jesus say that he is? He's Maim Kaim, but he's the bread of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's carry the table theme through. I know we live in it in the Gospels. We look at it at the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 21. Talk about it's a harvest of all the best grains, all the best fruits and vegetables and wine, right? But let's take that theme all the way back to Genesis 2. Abad, again, a dynamic word, 
but you see its use in the Old Testament. It's a word, again, cultivate, to till, that speaks of harvest. There was no one to harvest the Mm. fruits, the vegetables, to cultivate. So you take that word cultivate, not only to cultivate the land, but talk about cultivating community. Like Jesus did most of his ministry at the table with tax collectors and sinners. The table is significant in the ancient Near East. It's, It's your status, it's your community, it's your family, it's your place in the world. And so you carry this theme of cultivation all the way to Revelation 21 and how much the table and how much food, praise God, matters to God. Yeah, love it. And what's the scene? From Genesis 2 to Revelation 21, now we're in a scene with a great feast of food. It's a great feast of food. But Revelation 21 shows the greatest harvest of all time, the harvest Christ died for. It's yeah. people from every tribe and tongue oh, and nature. So Our call to cultivate isn't just to work the land. It's to cultivate community, to cultivate discipleship, to bring people to the hope of Jesus Christ. Like it's a big word from yeah. start to finish. And that the is harvest so is plentiful. I know. But the, what's the language? The workers, workers are, few. are few. I know. And then you talked about Jesus as the bread of life, which brings us back to Eden because, because if that aromatic resin, bedellium, is what describes the bread of life basically for the Israelites. It's like, it's yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Every time you say bedellium, I think, is it, what's that word? Like <laughs> meconio or something like, it's like baby poop. I just have my wife in the back of my head going like, <laughs> no, that's, that's that, what's that black stuff? Yeah, I remember when they had their first diaper. Yeah, totally. It's like, what are they doing? It's a funny word. Sorry. But just, I mean, now let's go back to the beginning. Tim, you just took us to the end of the story, but the beginning of the story we have a God in Genesis 1 who is so awesome, who created the galaxies, the, the, the millions upon millions of stars. He named them all. And then in Genesis 2, you have this God that, I mean, this misspelling of a word, which gives us two youths that are two hands. And I'm back to that, even that moment you had where those two hands grabbed your face. Mm-hmm. And these are the same two hands that go in the mud. And like, wh- whose hands are these that are doing this? This is Jesus throughout the whole text. He's not just at the end of the text. He's not just in the middle of the text, but he's right here at the very beginning. He's not just the God that's way out there, but he's a God that, yeah. And that's what he does in our lives. Like, that's what this podcast is about. Like, I hope that, your minds are blown by the things that our minds have been blown by, but it's more than that. It's because this God is real. And he, that's why I wanted to go to your story, Tim. Like he's, he's doing this every single day in our lives. And then to your point as well, like there's also things in our own lives that are still chaotic and hectic and they haven't been subdued. We haven't allowed them at many times to be subdued by, by God yet, or we're keep, we're, we're holding them back from him. So make your bed. Let God make your bed. Bring God into your world. Mm. I love right? I mean, our culture today is so looking into everybody's house, every looking over the fence at everybody's backyard and critiquing it and judging it. And I like that, Tim, that you had that time in your life where you were even concerning yourself with all those people in your life trying to hold everything together, everyone together, which was all good. But when God finally said, hey, Tim, 
maybe you ought to make your own bed almost, right? Yeah, yeah that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Eden is a real place today, and God still lives there, and we can still enjoy him and have relationship with him. And it starts in our hearts. It does. Where is the garden today? Yeah. Where does God first bring shalom to chaos? If you have a testimony, you know the answer. It's your heart. And then from your heart, right? God breaks through his shalom, his order to chaos. Just pause for a minute. God wants to bring order to your chaos. Amen. I know. Let him do it. Invite Car- him in. Invite him in and then watch what he does in your spheres of influence at work, at home, in your neighborhood as that shalom, that peace bursts forth. <laughs> I know. It bursts forth like the vision re- always was into the hearts of the people around you. And that's why it's, it's even just as much about being as it is about doing because things that burst forth are only things that are already in you. Hmm. That's good. And so they burst out of you because they cannot be contained. Ahead, did you Rob. guys did you guys ever have a seminary prof that said something like this? <laughs> and I don't want to indict seminary profs here, but I had several of them that said, you know, this whole idea that you invite Jesus in your heart. Like, <laughs> where is that in the Bible? <laughs> Listen to this. <laughs> and you'll go you'll go after me. Because I started to think about it. I was like, you guys are right. <laughs> it's not anywhere in in the Bible, why did everyone tell me to invite Jesus into my heart? Calvinism just killed it. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with his power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. There it is. This is Paul pray, Paul's prayer. And then he just goes on in that you may know the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that is wider, deeper, higher, fuller. Now we're right back in Genesis 2 again. <laughs> then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being we need god not just adjacent to our lives we don't need to live jesus adjacent lives where we kind of keep him at arm's length or to use football language kind of stiff arm a little bit but he's there and we invite him in every once in a while we need him to consume our lives we need him to be in our lives in our very being and this is also why our picture of humanity in Genesis 2 matters too because it both humbles us and exalts us. And we need humility to receive that, right? <laughs> Only a humble person receives the fact that God had to die, but that he chose to die because of his love for them. And that comes by first understanding who we are. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. We are not God. We're dust. But we're also more than dust. I don't know what you guys studied this week when it came the to two God rocks breathed. analogy was great. God breathed. He does. God breathed. What is what does that mean? It's his ruach. Even though that's not the word here. I, let me just be very clear. Shema is the word. Yes. But it, he is breathing his it's, spirit. It's the idea. The Shema is the idea of soul. That God breathed 
his soul and gave the clay a soul, God's soul. Hmm. And I do think this is what we lost, you know, and this is what we're going to get to in Genesis 3, this tragedy of Genesis 3. We still have oxygen in our lungs, but we lost the Neshama. But we've been made to, to breathe God, not just oxygen, right? In the innermost yeah. depths of our being. Great. I mean, we use the word, uh, you know, and I live in the counseling sphere a little bit. We use the word trauma quite a bit and, and rightfully so in a lot of cases. But I think the greatest trauma anyone's ever experienced is a shared trauma of humanity that happened at the fall to what you're speaking of. Like the, the reason there's so much brokenness in all of our lives and in this world and chaos is raining right now and not raining, but is, is having its way in some, some areas is because this shared trauma of the fall. Yeah. We lost the presence of God yes. dwelling in us. And again, right back to the heart. You always say God's a gentleman. Jesus is a gentleman. He wants to make his space in our hearts. He moves all the way up to the door, but he still knocks. He knocks. He knocks. And he wants to be back in that spot. He wants to heal. He wants to restore. He wants to bring order to the chaos, to the trauma, to this emptiness that we all feel that we're all trying to fill in a million different ways. He knocks and he says, let me come in. Yep. I can fix that. And he's saying that to a church. Totally. In other words, what am I doing on the outside? But he's a gentleman. He's knocking. Let me in. And let's do what? Let's eat. Let's have a meal. Let's feast. And that's why you can't do this Christianity thing alone. You can't just watch the live stream. I'm sorry, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be connected to the body of Christ. Because while we are temples individually of the Holy Spirit, the language that is used most frequently in Scripture is plural when it talks about the temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we're back in Genesis because this is temple language being used in the garden. And then the temple and the tabernacle will be many Edens with Eden imagery all over them because this is what we were made for and that's God's home and the temple will eventually be destroyed because Jesus comes onto the scene. What's the last thing he does with his disciples in John's gospel? It's weird. He breathes on them. That is what humanity lost is the very breath of God. Hmm oxygen now for the Christ follower was now Neshema, the very breath of God. I totally we thought about that at the yeah. end of John's gospel. Yeah, it's right there. <laughs> and that's, that's the imagery. We're back, to, we're back in the garden again. We're not just breathing oxygen. That's Jesus crazy. came to bring the breath of life. So to your point, this could be hours long. We're still scratching the surface. Yeah, I could sit here. I'm glad this is a long this sermon is where I series. Work. <laughs> <laughs> Tim has to get to work. Yeah, <laughs> but um, Tim, just so grateful for you, your friendship, um, and yeah, even just this week battling with the text with you. Was yeah, just man, such it's a been gift. a blast. And, um, you are a gift, brother. Yeah, that love that you, you yeah. and your family are a part of this church, and you're part of our vision too for pastors today. You are a pastor in your vocation. Yeah. You're not just a pastor who works at a church. And that's a big part of our vision at Crossroads. Mm. 
kingdom of priests. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. Shayla and I just feel like we've been raised up, you know, by this church and, uh, yeah, that DNA is, is in us. And so it's, it's so cool. Trig, man, you've, you've just jumped in, you've got that DNA and, uh, you're living into it. This podcast is awesome. Being in Chicago with you has been awesome getting to know you and Mal and, uh, man, guys, keep it up. The locker room has always been a part of Crossroads. And uh, now to be able to just have a space to voice some of this after the sermon prep is over stuff, uh, I think is going to ser- keep serving our people really well. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, we got some good ones coming our way. We got some special guests that are going to be coming on that I think will really um, – be beneficial for us to sit at their feet and receive from them. So that's all I'm going to say for now. Little teaser. Hey, Crossroads, don't forget 60 pairs of preferably wet, (laughs) stanky. I mean, I want the worst cleats you can find. I don't care if it's an eight-year-old's cleats or an 18-year-old's cleats. Get them to Trigg's office. We got to get a vibe going on here in the locker room. (laughs) You know, I had a lady who came to Crossroads a long time ago and She's Dutch, so she actually, from the Netherlands, she moved back to the Netherlands. And just out of the blue, she emailed me this week. And she, of course, calls me coach, which I love. Hmm. And she, she asked, How, how's the locker room doing? <laughs> so I feel like the locker room is back. I feel there was a season where we were losing it, but it's back. And I'll just leave it at that. And it's fun that it's back. And it's back because of guys like you, Tim, Drake, Quinn. Thank you. It's game on. But it's so much more than that. It's back because Crossroads, that's what God we is are. the shepherd of this that's church. That's what we are. Exactly. But that's what we are. Yep. And you know what? We all go through a little bit of an identity crisis at times, you know? And we have to be reminded every single day who we are. And this is who we are, and this is who God's called us to be. So I haven't done anything new. This is just an expression of that. And uh, The locker room requires great teammates. Yeah. It does. It just requires teammates that understand, are all on the same page, uh, working towards the same direction. And I guess from that vantage point, I can say we're back. I love it. I'm super excited. Hopefully you are as well, Crossroads and... uh, as Quinn has reminded me, like, wait, no, you don't like podcasts. You got to follow it and then hit that notification bell. And uh, that way you'll stay up to date on all of our uh, new podcasts coming out. We're going to have some bonus material in the next few weeks with different stories that we think will be beneficial to your walk with the Lord as well. And uh, we'll keep these coming to you and keep giving us your feedback. And again, go to locker room at crossroads-bible.org to submit any questions and we would love to hear from you this is the locker room where we break down sermons stories and scripture for the race of our faith locker room.